It's like a 4th of July fireworks display, only you're not observing it from afar. You're in the center of it. In fact, you're causing it. It's this amazing spewing of light all around you, flashes and glows and sparkles. Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. Early in her career, our guest, the ocean explorer and scientist, Dr. Edie Witter, received a phone call from a distraught physicist. The physicist was working on a major project aimed at detecting neutrinos, elusive subatomic particles that can give off faint flashes as they move through water. He and his colleagues needed the darkest place they could get, so they placed their ultra-sensitive light detectors deep in the ocean, beyond the reach of the sun's rays. But there was a snafu. Their sensors were detecting a lot of light. Someone suggested that the light could be from animals. Could it be true? The physicist asked Dr. Witter, now a world authority on marine bioluminescence. Yes, she told him. And then, after a long pause, he followed up. Is there some place in the ocean where there isn't any bioluminescence? Not that I know of, she replied. Like many of us land lovers, the physicists had assumed that light making among ocean creatures is an exotic and rare phenomenon. But oh boy, is that wrong. The majority of animals in the ocean, which means the majority of animals on the planet, are capable of making light. From top to bottom, the ocean is absolutely teeming with unforgettably beautiful and extraordinarily diverse light shows made by living things that we're only beginning to understand. There are deep-sea shrimp that spew glowing mucus like fire-breathing dragons to distract predators. Single-celled algae that glitter en masse as a form of burglar alarm. Crustaceans that put on complex, twinkling courtship displays. Fish that counter-illuminate their bodies to match the water above them for camouflage from creatures looking up from below. Squids that backlight their body tissue in flickering patterns that seem to coordinate group hunting. These are just a few examples of the roughly 75% of ocean animals that can make their own light. As Dr. Witter writes, there are possibly quadrillions of light-producing fish in our seas. Dr. Witter has devoted her career to exploring this phenomenon of marine bioluminescence, which she contends is one of the most important, widely used, and vastly underappreciated forms of communication in nature. It's also one of the most magical, as her marvelous new book, Below the Edge of Darkness, a memoir of exploring light and life in the deep sea, will convince you. For decades, Dr. Witter has trailblazed both intellectual and physical frontiers as a deep sea explorer, oceanographer, inventor, and marine biologist. She has been a leader in designing, inventing, and piloting new submersibles and equipment to enable humans to observe animals in the deep sea unobtrusively. Her innovations have produced many observations of animals and bioluminescence never before seen including the first footage of the giant squid in the wild. Dr. Witter is the co-founder, CEO, and senior scientist of the Ocean Research and Conservation Association, ORCA, a nonprofit that develops innovative technologies to protect ocean health. Dr. Witter, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Witter, in your, in your incredible memoir, you write that when you were first beginning your career, it was possible to pick up a marine biology textbook and not find any mention of bioluminescence anywhere. If light emitters were mentioned, they were positioned as as bit players or side players at best. And it was more of a phenomenon associated with a couple of land species, not so much in the oceans. What drew you to this field? 
Well, I think there were a number of factors that came into play. I was very interested in, neuro in neurobiology. I was doing my PhD on a bioluminescent dinoflagellate, and when I started, my focus was on its electrophysiology, but the fact that this creature could make light obviously was pretty fascinating. And I became more and more intrigued with it, and then I got an opportunity to see for myself what bioluminescence actually looks like in the ocean, and it completely changed the course of my career. That was in 1984, right, when you made that first dive? Correct. And you write in the book about how you were doing it in a metal diving suit called the Wasp, which had been developed for use in the offshore oil industry for exploration. And that was the first of many, many trips underwater that you'd be taking in submersibles in the years ahead. What happened on that dive and what did you see? So I went down on that very first dive, which was in the Santa Barbara Channel. It was an evening dive and I went down to 800 feet and I turned out the lights because I knew I would see bioluminescence. I didn't discover it. It's known for a very long time, but I was just completely unprepared for how much there was. It was staggering. And in fact, I joke in the book that, you know, my response when asked what it was like down there was to say it like the 4th of July, which I took a considerable amount of ribbing for from, from <laughs> my colleagues. It's that being a fairly unscientific statement, but I really have lost count of the number of times I've heard other people describe it that way. It's like a 4th of July fireworks display, only you're not observing it from afar, you're in the center of it. In fact, you're causing it. And it's this amazing spewing of light all around you, flashes and glows and sparkles. And the crazy thing was, though, when I turned on the lights on the submersible, I saw nothing. There, I, there were, you know, a few specks of things in the water, but there was nothing to account for all this light I was seeing. And it meant that most of what I was seeing at that point were animals either too small or too transparent to be illuminated by my lights. And so I was just mesmerized by this incredible world that clearly we know nothing about and now I realize constitutes most of the life on our planet. And it's just filled with light. It's a really amazing description of, of that that first visit and the, the pictures that are also included in the book. It really, I mean, your your description may have been unscientific, but it was certainly apt. It really is a tremendously beautiful light display. I'm, I'm curious. So a lot of the impetus for your initial work and a lot of the initial funding actually came from military spending and an interest in, in underwater light. Can you talk about some of that initial research and, and what it was that they were interested in looking at? Yeah, my career probably wouldn't have been possible except that there was a military interest in bioluminescence because of the possibility that it could illuminate large cigar-shaped objects moving through the water at night. <laughs> um, and they wanted to be able to quantify the potential for bioluminescence at, in any particular body of water so they'd have some kind of predictive capability of how much U.S. submarines or Soviet submarines might be made visible by bioluminescence. Mm -hmm. One of the things that really struck me about your new memoir is how completely crucial throughout your career from the very beginning, the role of engineering and technological innovation has played in your discoveries. And, and to me, one of the many gifts of, of the book that you've written is conveying a, a much greater appreciation of just how inextricably entwined the technological development and the, the biological exploration have been and, and continue to be. When you had that initial reaction of, this is so incredible, there's the 4th of July 
happening underwater all the time. Why are so few people studying this? Do you think it's primarily because of the technological limits? That definitely had an awful lot to do with it. At that time, there were no cameras that were comparable to the dark adapted human eye in terms of what they could record. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for a huge amount of my career, that's been true. The pictures that you see in the book are a result of recent advances in technology that have created cameras that now actually can see what human eye sees. And so it's finally possible for me to share some of this spectacular beauty that I've talked about for years, but had a very difficult time showing. You talk a lot in your book about just what an incredible adaptive phenomenon this is. And, you know, it's something that that has co-evolved at least 40 times, as, as you mentioned, similar to how eyes have evolved independently so many times. This obviously takes a tremendous amount of energy for these creatures to be generating this light. What are some of the, the uses that it has for them? So it is basic to survival because animals use their bioluminescence to help them provide food, for example, with built-in flashlights or with uh, lures like the um, scary-looking anglerfish in Finding Nemo, or they use it to help them uh, find mates. Um, just the way fireflies flash codes on land to attract a mate. There's animals in the ocean that have special flash patterns or specially shaped light organs that are meant to attract the opposite sex of their species. And then it gets used a huge amount for defense. And so there's animals that can spew bioluminescence into the water, the chemicals that make light that then go on glowing there while they make an escape into the darkness. It's the same principle as an octopus or a squid squirting out an ink cloud to distract a predator, but this is in darkness, and so they squirt out a cloud of light that distracts or blinds a predator while they swim away in the darkness. And then one of the most common defense mechanisms is the camouflage that bioluminescence provides, because the open ocean a place without hiding places. There's no trees or bushes or hidey holes or crags, nothing to hide behind. And that's been a huge driver for why there is so much bioluminescence in the ocean compared to on land. So the thought is that as the ocean filled up with predators that could see at a distance and swim fast, the only hope for prey was either to outswim their predators or find a way to hide. And the best way to hide was go down into the dark trouble is the food is um, produced at the surface through photosynthesis. And so animals would hide in the dark depths during the day and then only come up and feed in the food-rich surface waters under cover of darkness. And this is called vertical migration. It's the most massive animal migration pattern on the planet. It happens every day in oceans all around the world. But as a consequence, all of those animals spend most of their lives in darkness or near darkness. And so there's been a lot of selective pressure to develop more sensitive eyes and enhanced visual signaling, which is where bioluminescence comes in. What have studies on bioluminescence revealed about deep sea creatures' eyes and vice versa? Scientists have been baffled by deep sea eyes for a long time because these are just awesomely strange in all sorts of ways. So a lot of these animals have evolved incredibly sensitive eyes, and they do it in unusual ways, sometimes with multi-layered retinas, 
know, photoreceptors actually stacked on top of each other, so no photon can get get by. But often to do that, they have to sacrifice resolution. So they enhance sensitivity at the expense of resolution, which actually helps explain the camouflage I mentioned, which is called counter-illumination. These belly lights that krill and fish and squid have often seem surprising to people that that could be camouflage because they like distinct sources to our eyes. But the eyes of most deep-sea predators have lower resolution because they're trying to gather more photons. And so that polka dot pattern blurs together and forms a perfect, perfect match to the downwelling sunlight, obliterating its shadow so it doesn't have to swim so deep to be able to hide from upwind predators. Yeah, that phenomenon is really incredible. And you, you describe it as sort of this, this sci-fi-like phenomenon, like a cloaking device like you would see in, in Star Trek. It's really incredible how, how these animals have evolved to camouflage themselves in, as you say, this very, very open environment. You, you also talk about some of the ways that, uh, like the burglar alarm system that, that animals use uh, in order to basically thwart attacks from predators. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so the concept is the same as, as the burglar alarm on your car. The flashing lights and blaring horn are meant to attract attention, hopefully, of the police um, and to scare the burglar away because of all the attention being brought to bear. And so an animal caught in the clutches of a predator will often use every light organ it's got that might normally be used for attracting mate or finding food, but they'll use everything they've got flashing in the most brilliant pattern possible to illuminate whatever's attacking them in the hopes that something bigger might come along and attack their attacker and give them a chance to escape. It's actually the same reason that birds and monkeys have fear screams. They're meant to attract attention of larger predators. I've seen in some articles about bioluminescence online, popular um, media articles, a comparison between this language of light and sound on land. Do you think, and of course there's sound underwater too, but do you think that's an apt comparison for the role that it's playing for animals? Absolutely. It's, it's a communication at a distance and, you know, it can be quite elaborate communication in some cases. We haven't begun to discern um, all of it, but you know, one of the best examples is um, sea fireflies that are uh, ostracods. They're little tiny crustaceans about the size of a sesame seed, but they can spew out ridiculous amounts of light. <laughs> so they spew out a little bit of luciferin and luciferase, the two chemicals that make light, in a little dab of mucus. And so it glows, and then they swim up and they do another one and another one, and you get this string of pearls or string of dots in the water. Uh, and the spacing of the dots is species-specific. So you'll have a vertical shortening display for one species and a diagonal lengthening display for another species. And the cool thing about that is you can make this very conspicuous mating display and not attract a predator to you because the display you're leaving behind. And it's the males that do this. And so the female knows that if she goes to the head of that line at a certain spacing, she'll find a male to mate with. I'm wondering if you could describe a little bit more what you were just talking about with the vertical migration. It was such a 
gripping description in your book. It's a phenomenon that, you know, I, I certainly had never heard about before, but basically just a mass sort of rush hour, as you describe it, every single day where uh, these animals are, are expending a tremendous amount of energy and traveling incredible distances to come up closer to the surface to, to feed as, as darkness falls. And you mentioned that this is actually something that can be really picked up on um, ship sensors as looking like this, you know, almost rising of the ocean floor. Um, and you mentioned that you've actually, you've, you've seen this in process. Can you describe a little bit what this migration looks like physically and how this daily ritual works? So, as you mentioned, I mean, one way to see it is on sonar, and then it's hugely dramatic because you, it really does look like the bottom is coming up to meet the ship. And when sonar was first invented, there was more than one captain that panicked, thinking he was about to run aground. Nobody appreciated to what extent vertical migration was just moving life through the ocean in such astonishing volumes. So. You know, the best way to see it, actually, is on sonar, because then it's very distinctive. Uh, one of the funny things you see if, is if you dive a submersible or a remote-operated vehicle into that thick layer, thick scattering layer, as it's called, you'll see the animals disperse. And so you realize that the, the person in the submersible isn't seeing what you're seeing on the sonar, because all of the animals just dispersed away from it as fast as possible. And it's an indication of how much we're scaring away when we go down and try to explore. We mentioned that your first trip down into the depths in the submersible was in the wasp suit. Eventually, you ended up developing a whole range of technologies and helping invent new types of submersibles and cameras, including ones that mimic this bioluminescent pattern to try to address this problem of, of the existing technology being so obtrusive and scaring away the animals it was meant to find. You, you embark on the career, you have this amazing first experience of diving and, and decide you're going to devote your career to this. And then the problem is that there, there really aren't sufficiently good technologies to, to do it at the level that you wanted to. How did you go about working on the submersibles from there? So the idea of using the WASP to explore the midwater was uh, Dr. Robeson who was at UC Santa Barbara when I was there. And those of us that were using the WASP quickly became a little disillusioned with it because of the tether mm. the, that connects you to the, the surface ship. During my first dives, I found that kind of reassuring to know that was there, but I soon became very tired of it because you're like a tea bag on a string. <laughs> the boat is bouncing up and down at the surface, and it, that's transmitted down the tether to the suit, and so it's bouncing around all the time, and you're not being unobtrusive at all. In fact, I realized that uh, a lot of the luminescence I was seeing was probably being stimulated by the suit moving around in the water. So Bruce Robeson looked around for an alternative, and he decided to try the single-person submersible deep rover, which not wasn't a suit, but actually a plexiglass sphere that had just recently been developed by Phil Newton. And it was ideal for our purposes. And when I dove the deep rover, it was just a wholly different experience because I went down in the sub to deep water and trimmed it out to neutral buoyancy and there was no movement whatsoever. It was just absolutely still in the water. And when I turned out the lights, there was no luminescence, not a bit. And I, you know, I was sitting there waiting to count the numbers of sources per minute and there was nothing. But when I bumped 
thrusters and squirted water out of them. It was just this river of gleaming light that came spewing out of it and sparks that look like just when you throw a log on a campfire and the embers swirl up off the campfire, only these were icy blue embers. It was, there was luminescence all around me. But if I sat still, I wasn't seeing it. And I, I realized this is a minefield. Everything down here is a minefield, and animals have to negotiate this minefield and somehow find food and protect themselves, and any movement risks revealing themselves. So I gave the analogy as if, like if you were in the Superdome and it was pitch black, mm. and there were yummy apples dangling from strings that could help keep you alive. Only trouble is when you move to try to find those apples, you discover that there's little LEDs also dangling that flash on contact. And there's one other little catch. There's a panther <laughs> in there with you, <laughs> equally hungry. <laughs> and so the first time you cause one of those little lights to flash, its head will snap around and lock on your location. What are you going to do? How are you going to survive? And, and so that influences an enormous amount of what goes on in all these animals that spew their luminescence suddenly makes sense because that actually would make a good defense if the panther was coming at you, you could spew your light mm. into his eyes and swim away in the darkness without being seen. That's an incredible metaphor and a very helpful one too. I just want to make sure for anyone who's not familiar with it that we understand what the bioluminescent minefield is. These are algae, bacteria, as well as animals that are stimulated upon touch or light or other stimulus to, to reveal that's it. That's it exactly. Yep, that's it exactly. And you also make clear in the book, as you hinted at with the, you know, the shrimp spewing this glowing vomit or glowing mucus, that it's not just the animals that are glowing, but you tell a, a, there's a hilarious chapter in the book about glowing poop. <laughs> Can you tell us like, what is this glowing poop that you write about and how is the bioluminescence playing a role throughout the ecosystem in marine snow, which is another phenomenon you describe, which is incredible to learn about, um, and in deadfall at the bottom of the ocean too? So this is known as the bait hypothesis. And, and actually it was an idea first, first put forth by Bruce Robeson. And so all of the food that gets into the deep sea, or most of it, comes from the surface because that's where photosynthesis occurs. There are chemosynthetic sources in some places in the ocean, but they're a pretty small percentage. So most of it's coming from the surface, and it comes in the form of dead plankton and fecal pellets pooped out by animals feeding at the surface. And those fecal pellets are covered in bacteria. Well, it turns out a lot of those bacteria are bioluminescent, and it's selectively advantageous for the bacteria to glow because if they didn't, the fecal pellet would just sink to the bottom where there's essentially no food. But by glowing, it becomes visible to other animals that consume those fecal pellets, thus introducing the bacteria into the food-rich gut of that animal. And then it's pooped out and consumed again and again and again. And this is all part of what's known as the carbon pump, the carbon cycle. And it's a, a huge part of the story of how our living system works. Poop matters <laughs> and poop glows. And the fact that it glows is important. 
Well, and, and as part of that carbon pump system, you also write that this could have really tremendous climate implications as well. How, how does that sort of carbon cycle work and, and how does that factor in with our changing climate? Well, it's, a, it's an indication of how little we understand the machinery for life on our planet, that we know so little about this. It's only people that have been in submersibles that have seen the, the phenomenon that I speak about in that chapter called the flashback phenomenon. And if you're in a submersible and you flash a strobe or, or the lights on the sub on and off a couple of times, two, three times, it looks like everything out there glows back at you, and it all kind of comes on simultaneously and then goes off. And what you're seeing is carbon. You're seeing life. There's no question about that. But it's never been established what it actually is. My theory is that it's bioluminescent bacteria. I could be completely wrong about that. But it's clearly a huge part of the carbon cycle. And it's only those few of us in submersibles that dive in submersibles and bother to turn out the lights and bother to flash lights out there <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that have seen this. And I think it's kind of an, an amazing example of this whole fact that we live on a rock that sustains life. It's the only rock in the universe that we know of right now that can sustain life. And we have no idea how it's done. This is you know, the carbon cycle is a huge part of this, and this is happening in the oceans everywhere, and we don't know how the whole system works. We don't have a user's manual for our own planet, and we certainly don't have a repair manual, and we're destroying our life support systems at an alarming rate without understanding how they work. Right, and this is happening well before, you know, we've, we've even had a chance to see many of these, these places. Can you give us a sense of what all remains, the, the degree to which the ocean remains unexplored? So the, the number you hear most often is people often say we've only explored about 5% of the ocean. Uh, that number is definitely wrong. So it depends on what you mean by explore. I mean, we have low-resolution maps of the bottom of the ocean floor for the whole ocean, but they're very, very low-resolution. And they've been taken from satellites, which is kind of crazy. We have better resolution maps from side scan sonar that runs on from surface ships. And we're right now maybe approaching 30% of the bottom of the ocean map that way. But I don't really consider that exploring the ocean. You haven't even visited it. It's just remote sensing of the ocean. So if you think in terms of visiting the bottom of the ocean, you're talking about 0.05% that's been explored. And I think, you know, if, if if you figure it out in terms of the actual volume of the ocean and the open ocean environment and how much water you're talking about overall, it's it's a much, much smaller fraction. So it's absolutely crazy, I think, that we're talking about going to explore other planets because we finished exploring ours. <laughs> that makes no sense at all. <laughs> there we've we've explored such a tiny amount of the ocean and it's gotten it backwards because in human history, we have an unfortunate history of exploring followed by exploitation. Mm-hmm. But in the ocean, we've managed to do it in the opposite order. We've got exploitation before we've explored it, taking out every last fish, dumping in every bit of our pollution, 
acidifying the oceans, warming the oceans. We're, we're just destroying the ocean before we even know what's there. And you had mentioned the space race. And I know Jen and I both read your book, The Edge of Darkness, amidst all of the news of Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos going to space and this sort of new frontier of space tourism and, and so forth. And of course, there's been much more funding via NASA and now private philanthropists for space exploration. Do you see any parallel happening now with the ocean? Has the funding landscape changed since you embarked on your career in the 80s? There, there has been a change. Um, throughout my career, I, I've seen chronic underfunding of deep sea exploration and recently a pretty severe decline funding for, from government sources, but an increase from private sources. So just like the space race, there, there are wealthy philanthropists that have invested in ocean exploration. Ray Dalio started Ocean X and has one of the most advanced oceanographic vessels in the world now out exploring and discovering new things all the time and also working hard to share that with the public in an exciting manner. That's actually something that has help to contribute to the imbalance between space exploration and ocean exploration. When in the 1960s, NASA was basically given a blank check for space exploration because of the need to beat the Soviets into space. And they used a tremendous amount of their funding for PR. And they have a pretty impressive PR machine for sharing science with the public. Ocean exploration has never had anything like that. And so, you know, we spoke earlier about said you didn't know anything about vertical migration. That's kind of astonishing when you think about the mm -hmm. fact that it's the most massive animal migration pattern on the planet. And it's our planet. And just haven't done a very good job of sharing the thrill of it all public. And the hope is that we can do that more now. I felt that way about the marine migration, but so many times reading your book too, I've spent the last several weeks going around and telling everyone I encounter that 80 to 90% of the animals in the ocean can emit light. And I had no idea, like I, I had assumed, as I think many people do, and that poor physicist who called you up on the phone that we mentioned in the introduction that, you know, this is a rare phenomenon, but on the contrary, and I think your book will make a big contribution, go a long way to sharing that wonder and just how incredible that the planet is so much richer and, and different than we knew. Yeah, we, we really need to be doing a better job of fostering a reverence for life. And, and bioluminescence is such a magnificent visual representation of life mm -hmm. that I hope that it can inspire people to appreciate the miracle of life and do more to protect it. I certainly think your book will go a long way towards towards achieving that. I, I'm similar in a similar boat to Viveka, no pun intended, in that I I was just completely in a state of, of wonder throughout reading your book around some of these phenomena and how prevalent they are and how amazing they are and the fact that this is this is something that is not widely known and I I had certainly never heard of many of them. I, I would love to circle back a little bit to to some of your technological innovations because those are just as just as incredible as some of your discoveries actually you know in in the ocean itself. One of one of which is this eye in the sea camera that you designed and a unique lure called the e jelly that mimics the bioluminescent pattern of the atolla jellyfish. How does this work and and what has it allowed you to learn and achieve? 
spending as much time as I did in submersibles, I would always wonder how many animals there were out there just beyond the range of my lights that I couldn't see them, but they could see me. And how can we explore and not scare the animals away? The more I learned about bioluminescence and vision in, in motion, how sensitive their eyes are and how, how sensitive they are to any kind of light, that it just didn't make sense that we go down there with these bright, bright lights on our exploration platforms. But the trouble is that on land, when you want to look at nocturnal animals, for instance, you can use infrared light and infrared cameras and see without being seen. But in the ocean, you can't do that because infrared light is absorbed by seawater. And so I was trying to figure out some way to see without being seen. And I was also trying to get funding to create a camera system that would use a far red illumination is what I was hoping to be able to develop. And then an optical lure that would attract active predators. And I had a really tough time getting it funded because the funding agencies would always ask, well, what will you discover? And I'd say, well, that's the point. I don't know. (laughs) And so the the camera system had to be kludged together from a bunch of different funding sources. I actually, the first step was Harvey Mudd Engineering Clinic. Uh, I got them to do it as an undergraduate student project to put the pieces together for me. And then I got Noah to put it in an underwater housing. And I got Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, where I was an adjunct, to pay for the initial tests and for the underwater battery. So it was definitely a kludge. And I had a tough time getting the lighting right because the farther red the light was towards infrared, the harder it was to see. And I finally got an inspiration for how to fix the problem from a deep sea fish called the stoplight fish. And I had measured the light output of this fish because it's so unusual. Most animals in the ocean produce blue light. That's the color that travels furthest through seawater, which you know if you've ever opened your eyes underwater, everything is blue. Red gets absorbed very quickly. But this animal not only has blue light emitting light organs uh, near its eye, it uses its high beams, it's got red light emitting light organs. And it also can see red light, which is extremely unusual. And so it can use its red light as a sniper scope. And when I measured the emission spectrum of that red light, I discovered that it had a really sharp cutoff on the shorter wavelengths. And so I imitated that for the eye in the sea, and that turned out to be the the key to making it work. And then the very first time I got to test that eye in the sea camera system with the electronic lure, the jellyfish that imitated the burglar alarm of the Atola, was uh, in the Gulf of Mexico in 2004. I put the camera down the very first time, and we had programmed it for four hours of just observation without the optical lure on. And, you know, as I was reviewing the video after we recovered it, I was just thrilled because I could tell the fish weren't responding to the light. They were swimming around unperturbed. by, And I had my window into the deep sea. It was just so thrilling for me. And then four hours into the deployment, I had programmed the electronic jellyfish to come on for the very first time its pinwheel display. 86 seconds after it came on for the first time, we recorded a squid over six feet long that was so new to science it couldn't even be placed in any known scientific family. And I went back to the National Science Foundation and I said, this is what we will discover. (laughs) And they gave me half a million dollars to 
create the world's first deep sea webcam, which was installed in Monterey Canyon. Wow. Yeah, certainly a vindication of that the question of what you'll discover. Pretty incredible. Speaking of other incredible things that you've you've been able to to document through some of your technologies, in 2012, you captured the first video of this elusive giant squid in the deep sea using a stealth camera that you designed. How did you do this? I got invited on that expedition precisely because of the results we got from the deep sea webcam in Monterey Canyon. We saw squid attacking that pinwheel display over and over again. It was clearly highly attractive to large squid. And so it was that that got me invited on this giant squid expedition. And working with some colleagues of mine, Justin Marshall and Sanko Johnson, we had brainstormed a way to modify the eye in the sea or change its design so it no longer needed to be deployed from using a submersible or remote-operated vehicle, because that obviously greatly increased costs. So we developed this version of the eye in the sea that we called the Medusa, because it could um, float around in the midwater or it could land on the bottom. And the Medusa was what got the first images of giant squid on that 2012 expedition. And that was a huge deal, because there had been quite a few very expensive expeditions that had been together over the years. Filming the giant squid in its natural habitat had been called the holy grail of natural history cinematography. And uh, Dr. Sunim Kubadera, who was uh, along on this mission in 2012, had managed to get the first still images of a giant squid off the Ogasawara Islands. And so that's where we went, Dara. And this was a, funded by the Japan Broadcasting Corporation, NHK, and Discovery Channel. It's so wonderful, not just to see the footage, which is so incredible, but also to see the photos and the videos of you and your colleagues reacting to this, because the joy and the delight is just contagious. Sadly, as you hinted, that you know, while these submersibles have allowed us to find these incredible creatures that are you know, not even necessarily that rare, but in the ocean, we had no idea, they've also allowed more destruction and, and extractive industries to go deeper than they've ever gone before. And in recent years, I, I know we've seen a lot of explosion of interest in deep sea mining, for instance, for valuable metals and um, the International Seabed Authority regulating mining in international waters and approving vast swaths of territory for ocean exploration. What impact do you think that this will have on, on deep sea creatures and, and on those that bioluminesce as a form of communication? Uh, well, I think the, the deep sea mining and a deep sea trawling are just devastating to the bottom of the ocean. Um, and it's more examples of exploitation before exploration. In fact, a lot of that's being done remotely without intervention of submersibles at oh, all. Wow. And some ROVs sometimes, but you know, they just go down and scrape the bottom oh. when they're doing bottom trawling and have an absolutely exquisite undersea garden just filled with giant deep sea corals that sparkle when you touch them and just brilliant bizarre animals and it, it these deep sea trawling nets have rollers on them that just roll across the bottom to cause any shrimp bottom living shrimp or fish to jump up into the net and they scrape it and they leave it behind as a moonscape so something that took thousands of years to grow it's not going to sustain life for at least hundreds of years and it's so short-sighted and so stupid. And that's actually where I hope that 
the work of submersibles and ROVs can show people what's down there because people don't protect what they don't love and certainly not what they don't know. I, I know that after the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, you actually went down to the spill site and documented some of uh, the destruction that you saw there. Actually, we tried to. We didn't succeed. <laughs> uh, the weather did not cooperate. But yeah, that was one of the first deployments for the Medusa camera system was by the BP oil spill. But we didn't get close to the actual site. Actually, they, they weren't allowing us. Um, the um, BP was keeping boats out of the area. A couple of decades, you know, after you had been learning about these incredible phenomena in the ocean, you did start to realize the the impact that that we as humans were having. And in the early 2000s, you founded the nonprofit ORCA, the Ocean Research Conservation Association, to address some of these challenges. Can you tell us about some of ORCA's work? I started ORCA in response to a couple of reports that had come out, the 2003 Pew Oceans Commission report, the 2004 U.S. Commission on Ocean Policy, both detailing the deterioration of the ocean in fairly alarming terms and calling for bringing ocean monitoring into the 21st century. And I thought, well, you know, that's a lot of what I've done in my career is work with engineers to develop ways to monitor things. Maybe I can help with this. And actually, when I started ORCA, I thought I was giving up my deep sea career to give back to the ocean, but it's turned out that that hasn't happened. I've actually still managed to keep the deep sea stuff going as well, which I'm enormously grateful for. But when I started ORCA, we had a pretty simple business model where we were going to develop these water quality monitors called Kilroy's that were a lower cost and smaller than anything that was available on the market. Unfortunately, I started ORCA in 2005. We were progressing slowly, but we were progressing with our development. And then in 2008, the economic downturn was used as an excuse to slash all monitoring programs, especially here in Florida. And so actually, I wouldn't have even been able to keep the program going at all, except I got a MacArthur Fellowship and I poured every penny of that money into completing the development of the Kilroys. But because of the economics of the situation and, you know, the resistance to real-time monitoring, which clearly is what we should be doing, I started looking around for lower-cost ways to get at where the pollution is accumulating in the environment. And we were looking at sediment samples from the lagoon, and I wanted some kind of canary in the coal mine, what's called a broad-spectrum bioassay, that could tell me you know, which sediments were toxic. And looking around, the one I settled on was bioluminescent bacteria. There was actually already a, an assay available called Microtox, and scientist I hired at ORCA, Dr. Beth Falls, adapted that assay so it could be used on sediment, and it's become a, a routine part of our pollution mapping to create these maps that look like pollution, like weather maps where red is hot and blue is cold, only red is toxic and blue is non-toxic. And they've proved to be a very powerful tool for communicating to the public Know, what's happening in their local ecosystems. Estuaries are the nursery of the ocean, and it's so vital that we keep them healthy, and yet they're under more extreme attack even than the open ocean environment. 
you describe in the book how you and your your husband had moved to the edge of one of these estuaries, the Indian River Lagoon in Florida in the late 1980s. And you used to see all sorts of wildlife. And you describe manatees and otters coming up to the dock and birds flying overhead. And, and now seeing those same type of animals is, is very rare. And when you do see them, they often have the dolphins have fungal-like lesions or the sea turtles have these debilitating huge tumors. And due to the pollution that you're then able to see with this, really, I thought it was just so ingenious. And I, I didn't realize that about the, the funding being stripped back, but I'm so glad you're able to keep it going because the idea of having these cheap, fast, real-time monitors seems just so obviously valuable and important, but, but really neat as well that you were able to do that using the bioluminescent bacteria as, as the marker. Yeah, so the the bacteria isn't a real time monitoring. It's but it it's an indicator, um, and it's a, a low cost indicator. Any real time monitoring, unfortunately, is relatively expensive. We managed to greatly you know, decrease the cost by about two thirds, but it's still a lot of money. Uh, it's like when you go into the emergency room, and they need to monitor your life support systems, your oxygen, your blood, and urine, and all of these things are indicators of your overall health and whether what they're doing is making you better and not worse. We need to be doing the same thing for our planetary life support systems and monitoring them as though our lives depend on it. And we're not doing that at all. Unfortunately, most of the time, monitoring only happens after an ecosystem has collapsed. So we don't even know how healthy ecosystems work because we've never slapped monitors on them to the extent that we need to really understand the complexity of the system. You write at the end of your book about the form of optimism that you've developed over the years, and you tell it through the story, uh, which I loved, of Matt Damon's character, Mark Watney, in the film The Martian, where he's been up, up on Mars, he's been abandoned by his crew, no one else realizes he's up there, he has limited supplies, and he faces this planetary crisis all around him, and his reaction is to both soberly assess the realities of, of the crisis that he's in, but also to just start solving problems one after another. You've adapted the same very admirable mindset in your own work. How do you keep in the face of all of the destruction, keep that optimism and, and maintain hope? Well, I, I, it was a technique I had to learn many years ago when I had a long stretch in the hospital, mm -hmm. um, which I talked about in the book, where I uh, Everything that could go wrong did go wrong, including I went blind for a while. And so you can't let yourself be overwhelmed. If you look too far forward, it just looks impossible and, and you want to give up. And if you look back at what you've lost, it's also debilitating. And so you just need to focus on getting that next handhold. And that's kind of what Watney was doing in The Martian. Was you just you know keep working the problem. Do the next right thing. And don't overwhelm yourself. And it's a good trick. And it's served me very well over the years in a lot of different circumstances. You've obviously have incredibly tremendous um, accomplishments throughout your career. What, what is really exciting and, and driving your, your research and work now? Well, I'm just thrilled that I may actually get a chance to, to um, figure out more about this connection between bioluminescence and the carbon pump. The, the technology is moving as fast as it is, and the imaging technology is making it possible to actually record some of these things, and now being able to share with this book and actually some upcoming documentary films, I'm hoping to excite other people that will 
take up the challenge and I just can't leave my good fortune. Actually, I, I just came back from an expedition where I, I stepped on one of the most advanced oceanographic vessels in the world, Ray Dalio's Ocean Explorer, on my 70th birthday. <laughs> and wow. that, that, that was pretty cool. It's quite a birthday present. It was. <laughs> and it's so incredible, too, to hear so many people could spend a whole career doing something and they're just fed up with it by the end. But the excitement and the wonder and the discoveries and the importance of it all seems just, if anything, magnified and blown up for you from where it started, which is really inspiring and wonderful to hear. I think that that high of discovery is the greatest human high there is. And you mentioned that you know they were able to record that moment on the giant squid expedition. I had no idea. I said, oh, my God, that many times. <laughs> I'm told there's little girls in Japan that can imitate my voice <laughs> perfectly. But, but it's wonderful to be able to share that so that, that people can know there is so much to discover on our planet. And it's the greatest high you'll ever have. Well, you've, you've certainly done so much to inspire others throughout your work, uh, and your, your book is just the latest example of that. But as you talk about in your book, these are, these are feeds and streams that have, have people take comfort and hope in, in in hospitals, and people around the world have been just so inspired and captivated by your work. I'm curious if there are any sort of works, either you know books, films, or, or other pieces that have inspired you. Oh, of course, there have been many. Um, well, I don't, I hard to even know where to begin. I mean, one of the greatest inspirations in my life was my mother, a farm girl in Western Canada, and went on to get a PhD in mathematics from Bryn Mawr. Uh, I, that's just such an amazing journey to have made. And so I had her always as a role model in my life. And I think that spared me a lot of what a lot of other women had to deal with, sexism. Uh, it just, rolled off my back, I think, a lot more easily because I had her as a role model. Um, and from the totally silly to, like, one of my favorite movies is Alien because that was the first movie I ever saw that had a woman as a heroine. Mm -hmm. And she didn't have to fall into some man's arms at the end to justify her existence. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a that's a good reason <laughs> right there. Well, you're you're a hero to so many people. Thank you so very, very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org. We can find out more about Dr. Edie Witter and her extraordinary work. Thanks for listening.